Good morning, Servants Church. Hope you're all doing well this morning. Uh, why don't you turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. Uh, we are starting a new section in Chronicles as we continue to go verse by verse through uh, both 1 and 2 Chronicles. And we're getting to the section that deals with this king, this good king, Hezekiah. So we're going to just look at chapter 29 today. So if you'll turn there with me, I'm going to read uh, the first two verses, I'm sorry, the first three verses, and as well as the last verse, verse 36, and then we'll pray and we'll get into it together. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. And in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord's and repaired them. And then this is verse 36. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. And Father, we pray that you would meet us here today, Lord, right where we are, uh, in our, our living rooms, Lord, with our families on our own. Lord, as we hear your word, would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit? And Lord, would you do that quickening, that sudden work of bringing us to the place you want us to be? Father, we pray, Lord, that what we read in this account today would be echoed in our lives and we know, Lord, that can happen only because of the work of your Holy Spirit. And so we trust you to do that work. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm really excited about this section that we're getting into. Uh, in fact, I was originally going to do this in two weeks. And then I tried to spread it out to four weeks, but it actually works best for us to do it in three weeks. And really, we're going to be talking about this good King Hezekiah and how through Hezekiah, God brought revival to Judah. Now, if revival seems uh, like a loaded term, it is. Let me kind of give you a dictionary definition of revival. This is from the Cambridge Dictionary. It, it defines revival as the process of becoming more active or popular again. So we might say that turntables are, are experiencing a revival. People, are, I guess, are sick of digital downloads and they're going back to old school turntables. Uh, but when we talk about a definition of revival, looking at it that way, people can't even think of that way uh, of, of revival in the sense of church. We can say, okay, revival is when it gets popular to go back to church again. Or revival is when uh, Christian artists get popular in music or in, in some other genre, in sports or something. And so we see revival is when somehow Christianity grabs, gets some more cultural credibility. But actually, the way the Bible talks about revival is something a bit different. In fact, we can see revival being expressed or being experienced in the words of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 57. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Here's what it says. The high and lifted one who lives in eternity, the Holy One, speaking of God, says this. I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. It's interesting. 
Because really there's nothing mentioned there about uh, having some sort of popularity. When God talks about revival and how he wants us to experience revival, it's something that he does for us as we humble ourselves before him. And so in this series, in, in looking at how God used Hezekiah to bring revival to Judah, we're going to look at three main things. And, and the first thing we're going to look at is this week, we're going to talk about that revival means us refocusing on God. And it's significant that this is where it begins, because here Hezekiah is in a place, if you've been with us the last few weeks, where Judah is in a very low end. His father Ahaz had taken Judah to probably the low points of their history, at least up to this point. And, and it had gotten so bad in Judah that they had seen their, 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 their children and their wives taken into captivity. They had closed the temple down. Ahaz had closed the temple down so the true worship of God couldn't continue. And they were uh, facing this, this military threat from Assyria. Assyria was the sort of world power that was growing and coming into to more and more strength during the time that this was taking place. And so in, in the face of this military obstacle, Hezekiah says, yep, there might be a military uh, presence coming or a military uh, enemy coming, but the truth is our biggest need is spiritual. We need to get right with our God. And so we're going to pick it up today, and we're going to see three things that happen uh, that, 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 that we see in what Hezekiah is doing that really teach us what this kind of revival looks like. What does it look like when God's people begin to refocus on God? So the first thing we see happening is Hezekiah challenging the Levites. Look at verse 3 once more. It says, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, Hezekiah opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and he repaired them. You almost get the sense that as soon as his father Ahaz is out of the picture, that what uh, Hezekiah does is he goes, takes a team of, of, of builders with him, goes straight to the temple and says, fix these doors right now. And I can just picture him standing there as they're opening those things up and making sure that they open and close the way they're supposed to do. That, that he's kind of saying this temple, the house of God, is soon and very soon going to be open for business. That God's going to do what he wants to do with his people. And this is where he said he wants to do it. And so he's making a very bold statement right off the bat. And as he makes this statement, he, it says in verse 4 that he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square. And he says to them, verse 5, hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord, uh, the Lord God of your fathers, and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Now, the first thing we're, we're seeing in, in, in Hezekiah's challenge to the Levites is, hey, you need to restore God's house. Now, this word sanctify, some of your versions might say consecrate. It's a word that means, it's, it's, it's related to the word holy that we see in the same section. And it's a word that means to make or pronounce something or someone as set apart for God. Now, I think it's important that we know that when we see this word holy, if you are following the Bible reading plan that we have for Servants Church, we're in Leviticus right now, and the whole thing is about holiness. What does it mean to be set apart for God? What does it mean when God sets something apart? And it's important that we recognize here when Hezekiah gives a command to the Levites to set apart these things, to sanctify these things, it's not so much that they're making them holy, but they are 
recognizing the holiness of these things and bringing them back to the place where they are used for a holy purpose. Now, he talks about, he gives his command to clear out the rubbish that was in the inner room or in the holy place. And if you remember in the context, don't, don't picture rubbish as in so fast food wrappers kind of chucked in there or just household waste. But rubbish was in the sense of these pagan idols that they were actually being set up by Ahaz. That, that what was meant to be a place that only the high priests went into, a place where God himself would dwell and make his presence known, a place that represented that God was among his people, had turned into a place that was full of idols and idol worship and pagan deities. And of course, this defiled the temple. In fact, it's interesting because the, the author of Kings tells us this about Hezekiah. It says that Hezekiah broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. That's interesting that, that Hezekiah would go into the temple or, would, or, or take what was brought out of the temple, the rubbish that was brought out of the temple, that Hezekiah would take something that was made by Moses and destroy it. But the reason was, listen, was it was a good thing that Moses made, but the people took that good thing and they turned it into a God thing. They began to worship it. And so Hezekiah says, this has to be destroyed. This is defiling the temple. And so he's challenging the Levites to clean this out. And this is what they do. Now, it's interesting too that this challenge is for them to recognize that what they had been experiencing in Judah at that time was actually the chastening of God. Look at verse 6. It says, For our fathers, here's why they should clean out the rubbish. Here's the motivation. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule. That would be the front uh, entrance to the temple. They have put out the lamps and have burned incense or offered burnt, and have not burned incense, excuse me, or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God, uh, the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, to jeering, as your eyes see. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now, this is important. Because Hezekiah is not just saying, listen, let's clean out the, the, the temple again so that we can use it the way God wanted it to use it. He's saying, listen, there needs to be a recognition that we're in the place that we're in because we've turned our backs on God. Because our ancestors have turned, our fathers have turned their backs on God. I think this is important. I, I think when we look at the, the current state of the globe right now, what's happening in the world I think it's important for us to recognize that God's intention for this is to use it to chasten us, specifically us as God's people. And don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the COVID-19 is the judgment of God. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that God is, is, is allowing this to happen as a wake-up call. I, I really do believe that. That God's intention to use this is to call us to recognize where we've fallen from, how we as his people have turned our back on him, and how nations who once professed that they were Christian nations have turned their back on him. And I think we need to recognize that. 
I think it's important for us whenever any of us as individuals or corporately begin to experience hardship, that one of the first things we should do is say, Lord, are you trying to chasten me for something? Is there, Lord, search my heart. See if there's a wicked way in me. Is there something in my life that needs to be cleaned out? Now, what happens next? Hezekiah exhorts these Levites. He challenges them. Verse 10, he says, Now it's in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that, the fir- that his fierce wrath may, uh, may turn away from us. He says, My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you. Notice, to stand before him, to serve him, and that you minister to him and burn incense. Now, it's important that you see what Hezekiah is challenging these guys to do, what he's challenging the Levites to do. He's saying to him, listen, this is not just getting back to the service of the temple. It's about getting back to the God of the temple. It's about turning back to him. It's about getting things right. Now, it's important that we see this because one of the things that that we have to understand about what God does when he wants to bring revival is he wants to bring us back, not just to, to sort of right behaviors, but back into a right relationship with him. That we would exalt him above all other things. That the, the affections of our hearts would be for him first and foremost. That we would recognize that when we sin against other people, we are actually first and foremost sinning against him. This, this is what the Bible teaches. This is how, how David responded when David finally uh, owns up to his sin of sleeping with this woman Bathsheba and then having her husband Uriah killed when he's caught. Listen to his prayer of repentance from Psalm 51.4. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Do you see what David's praying? David's not ignoring the fact that he, he has done things wrong against Bathsheba and against uh, her husband Uriah or against the nation of Israel uh, for that matter. But what he's saying is, God, ultimately my sin is against you. It's you that I, gotta have to, I need to get right with. This is important because for us as Jesus followers, we need to recognize that to follow Jesus is to recognize who he is. Our Savior, absolutely, yes, but also our Lord, that we recognize him as the one who commands us. Now, listen, I'm not being naive. The scripture's not naive. It doesn't mince words about how difficult it is for us to walk in obedience, It's difficult for us to obey God because we're sinners and we want to do our own thing. But it's also difficult for us to obey God because the standard he sets for us, loving him supremely, loving others in a way that we naturally love ourselves, that's a very high standard. We think, God, this is difficult. It's tough to do. But why do we obey? What motivates us to obey is not the, the, our understanding or our pleasure with the command. It's our trust in the commander. God, we trust you. Therefore, we want to obey you. You see, Hezekiah is challenging the Levites not just to restore the house of God, but to recommit to the person of God. Let's go back to this God that that has saved us, that has redeemed us. It's interesting, too, about revival. When revival actually begins to happen in a place, this is what we have seen throughout church history. 
different times when God has sovereignly moved among his people and called his people back to a right relationship in such a powerful and corporate way that it spilled over to the culture at large. When that happens, people stop talking about revival and they just start talking about Jesus. They get back to God. They get back to the God who's shown himself, who's taken on flesh and walked among us. So after the king challenges the Levites, what happens? The Levites actually cleanse the temple. Look at verse 12. It says, then, then these Levites arose, and then from 12 to verses 12 to 14, the author lists all these names that I won't embarrass myself or torture you by trying to pronounce. But it is important that he mentions these names. The fact that he is uh, mentioning these guys specifically tells us something. First of all, it tells us that all the tribes of, uh, of, of Levi's were participating. And so in listing these names, he's in, in, in doing two things, especially for the first readers of Chronicles. Remember, those captives who have, or former captives who have come back to Jerusalem to rebuild, those would have been the first readers. They're seeing these names and they're recognizing this, these, these are our families. These are people that Levites would have recognized. These are our ancestors who both caused the problems in the first place, but also when it was time, repented and walked with God. And so there's, there's something about naming the names, listing the families that honors that repentance. But also look at verse 15. It says, And they gathered their brethren, sanctified themselves, and went according to the commandment of the king at the word of the Lord to cleanse <clears throat> the house of the Lord. Then the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out <clears throat> uh, all the debris uh, that was found in the temple of the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it out and carried it to the brook Kidron. Now, this is important. This is where we see again this distinction between Levites and priests. Now, remember... Every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest. The priests had the unique privilege and responsibility of going into the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple where, uh, where they would actually offer the sacrifice. The high priest would offer the, the main sacrifice to God to make atonement for God's people. And the rest of the Levites, they were the ones that were to just kind of help them maintain the temple, to work around the outside of the holy places. And so they each had their own uh, roles. And we see here that each of them are focusing on their particular roles. Now, this is important. It's, it was important for the first readers to recognize this, and you're going to have specific roles, and everyone's going to be doing different things, but they're all important if we're going to see the temple rebuilt and used for holy purposes. But it's important for us because the scripture does teach us that we as God's people collectively are the temple of God. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says this, Do you not know that you, that's the plural you, you collectively or corporately, that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now, now, stay with me right now, because I want you to think about this. In the same way that in the days of Chronicles, in the temple that they were rebuilding, in the temple that they were reading about, that Hezekiah is now uh, uh, challenging, and the Levites are now uh, challenging about, Levites are now cleansing out. That temple... Uh, pictures, looks forward to us as the church, God's people. 
That in the same way that that, temp, that, that that temple would be filled with God's Spirit, God would dwell there, that God's Spirit dwells in us. And in a very, say, a very real way, in a very similar way, in the, in the sense that they could defile that temple, we can defile this temple. And so there's a, there's a, a need for us to recognize that we can do that and to recognize that, there's, that we have each a responsibility and a role to play to keep that temple set apart, to keep ourselves set apart for God's purposes. Now, I want to be clear about something, okay? We don't defile the temple collectively because we're sinners. If that was the case, there would be no temple. The church couldn't be a temple because we're all sinners. We defile the temple, listen, when we are unrepentant of our sin. You see, we're all sinners. We sin on a daily basis. We fall short on a daily basis of, uh, in, 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 a, in a big picture sense, we fall uh, uh, short of loving God with all our heart, mind, uh, soul, and strength. We fall short of loving our neighbor as ourselves. And then all the applications thereof and all the ways the scripture wants us to live that out, we fall short. We try to do what, what, what God wants us to, oh, we, or we try to do in our own strength, but God says we can only do in his strength. That's sin. We don't do the things that God calls us to do. We do the things that God tells us don't do. We sin on a daily basis. All of us do. But it's not just the sin that defiles the temple. It's the unrepentance of that sin that defiles the temple. It's the fact that we let these idols of our heart sort of build up and we hold those on and we bring them into the worship of God, or at least we attempt to. This is why the scripture says in James chapter 5, listen, that when we come together, here's what we should do. We should confess it says we should confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. How do we maintain the holiness of the temple that we are meant to be as God's collective people? We keep sure it accounts with God. And if we're struggling with something, we bring that to, to one another and we pray for each other. I want you to keep that in mind because it's going to be really important as we come to the end. Now we get to verse 20 and we see the, the third thing that's happening in chapter 29. We've seen Hezekiah challenging the Levites. We've seen the Levites begin to cleanse the temple. In fact, I didn't read uh, verses 17 to 19 on purpose. We're going to look at that more next week. It has to do with the timing of these things. But they did get the temple cleaned out. And what happens? We see now that the people respond to God. I'm going to read verse 20 again, okay? It says, Then King Hezekiah rose early, gathered the rulers of the city, and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. Now, what they're doing is that the temple's been cleansed out. It's ready to be used for what it's meant to be used for, for God's people to draw near to God. And they recognize the priority has to be the sin offering, but not just for themselves as the people. But these three categories for the kingdom, that is for the two tribes of Judah and the ten tribes of Israel, that is the spiritual people of God. There's a sense here that they've recognized they've sinned against God and God alone, as we just saw that David prayed. There's a recognition that they are, are guilty of a spiritual neglect of spiritual sin. But also, he says, for the sanctuary, there's been an institutional sinfulness that needs an offering or needs atonement. 
They've used the sanctuary the wrong way. They used the temple the wrong way. There, there needs to be a, 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 an offering made that makes atonement for the institution. And for Judah, there's a need for national atonement. In a very real sense, you could say that they're bringing this sin offering as a way to show God we're repenting for, for what we've done spiritually, we're repenting for what we've done institutionally, and we're repenting for what we've done nationally. This is a good thing. They're recognizing that they need the grace of God. They need the sacrifice that God commands if they're going to have all those things cleansed. And so what happens? They, they do this. We pick it up in verse 21. It says, Then, then uh, Hezekiah commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer all these animals on the altar of the Lord. So they killed the bulls, and the priests received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, they killed the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar. They also killed the lambs and sprinkled the blood on the altar. Now, you might be hearing this or reading this and be put off by this. Maybe you're someone, you know, honestly, maybe you're a vegan and you feel like killing animals is always wrong. Uh, maybe that's what you're wrestling with. Maybe, uh, maybe you're someone who just feels like the, the killing of animals uh, is just something that's dis, distasteful to you. You don't want to hear about it. Maybe you're someone who's listening to this and wondering to yourself, well, why does God desire or require all this blood, all this sacrifice, all this death? We well, have to understand something. The Bible equates blood with life for a very good reason. That if we bleed too much, if we lose too much blood, even if we're healthy in every other way, what happens to us? We die. The life is in the blood. And, and demanding the sacrifice, what God is saying with these sacrifices, these multiple sacrifices, is that, that there's a life that's being lost through sin. Sin brings death. Or as it says in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. Sin always brings death. This is what God told uh, Adam uh, in the very beginning of creation. God creates Adam and Eve, and he looks to Adam. He says, Adam, I'm giving you some, some responsibilities here. Adam, this is before Adam sinned. And one of the responsibilities was, he says, you can eat from any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat it, you will die. Literally, dying you will die. Death comes from sin. And so God requiring the death of these animals is a practical, sometimes even gruesome, sometimes even difficult reminder that this is the wages of sin. It's death. You might go, oh, that death's distasteful. It is distasteful. It's distasteful to God in a real sense, in the sense of <clears throat> that death is called in Scripture the last enemy, that death was not part of God's original good creation. But then he commands this death to be done as a picture of, hey, listen, death or sin has to be dealt with. Death is the cost of sin, the consequence of sin. But more than that, look at verse 23. It says, And they brought out the male goats for the sin offering before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them, and the priest killed them, and they presented their blood on the altar as a sin offering to make atonement for all Israel. For the king <coughs> commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering be made for all Israel. 
So, so you, you see this splashing against the altar. The altar has to be made holy, right? The altar has to be a holy altar if it's going to receive a holy sacrifice. So you have all the other animals being slain. Then you have this recognition of, well, now if the people are going to be holy, there has to be an offering made for them, atonement made for them. Now here's what's interesting. All these sacrifices point again forward to Jesus. They point forward to the sacrifice that he would Make for us. Listen to this. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, it says, For by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Man, small verse, but it's full of of so much. You see, what the blood of bulls and goats and lambs could not do, the Lamb of God, Jesus himself, God the Son who takes on flesh, Jesus, who is called the last Adam, he becomes the sacrifice so that through the shedding of his blood, we who are being made holy practically are declared perfect or holy positionally through his sacrifice. This is so important. Because here we're going to see the people responding to God as, as this first step of revival, God's people re- refocusing on God, that the people are respond only, listen, only after the sin offerings have been made. Only after there's an acknowledgement that the wages of sin is death. Only after there's a recognition that unless there's a perfect, pure offering, there's no way that unholy people can approach a holy God. But once those things are made, we can enter in. See, here's the great news. The good news is that we don't have to slay animals anymore. We we don't have to find a perfect lamb because God became, in a very real sense, the perfect lamb. There's a mystery to Jesus' cross, the idea that he's 100% Man and still 100% God, and yet God can't die, but then the, the God man does die a real death as a real man, that his blood does somehow pay for our sin. There's a mystery to these things that the Bible declares, but it's still truth, it's still reality, it's still what's necessary for us to understand if we're going to experience real revival. We have to recognize that through Jesus' one sacrifice, he makes us perfect. And we identify as those, those people in a perfect position, a perfect holy position, because we see God is making us holy. He's setting us apart for his purposes. So after the sin offerings are made, what happens? Verse 25, then Hezekiah stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, string instruments, with harps, according to the commandment of David, of Gad the, the, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For thus was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David, and the priests with the trumpets. And then Hezekiah commanded them to offer burnt offerings on the altar. Listen, and when the offerings began, the song of the Lord also began with trumpets, and with instruments of of King David of Israel. Now, I want you to recognize what's going on here, okay? The people are responding now with authentic 
praise. And I want you to recognize that this authentic praise, in fact, what the, what the author of, of Chronicles is doing here is he's showing how what Hezekiah did completely lined up with what David and Solomon did. In fact, in some ways, what Hezekiah did was, uh, in some ways, even more glorifying to God. Because what he does is he wants to make sure that the worship of God is something that is pleasing to God, that the praise, this authentic praise that's coming forth to this God who's already provided the perfect sin offering for them, to be cleansed from all the rubbish that they've been involved in in, in, in recent generations, that that praise was meant for God's pleasure and not for their own. See, this burnt offering that is meant to coincide the actual praise, the physical singing of, the verbal singing of praises to God, this burnt offering specifically speaks of an offering that is a, an offering of consecration, of saying, God, this whole, thing's belong, this whole thing belongs to you. So some of the offerings that God uh, uh, commanded, some of those offerings were, were the parts of them were offered on the altar, the other parts were cut up, and the priests and the Levites could eat off these things. But then some of the offerings were just put there and burnt wholly, completely, just the whole thing belongs to God. And it was a, it was a sense of saying, God, we're all yours. All that I am is yours. All that I am is yours. See, the Bible doesn't say that we shouldn't enjoy worship. The Bible teaches us, though, that worship praise is not for our pleasure. It's for God's pleasure. Just like the the burnt offering was said to be a sweet aroma rising unto God, that's what we should desire our praise to be. That's authentic praise. That's responding to God, refocusing on God. That's the first step of revival. God, I I want you to be pleased. I want to sing so that you're pleased. Listen, if you are finding, yeah, you know, I miss corporate worship. We came together and sang together. You know what? A lot of us feel that. But let's be honest. We're not here singing songs so that we enjoy the music. We're here singing songs so that God enjoys our praises because he's worthy of them because he's done what needed to be done to make us right with him. Verse 28, he continues with this idea of authentic praise. It says, so all the assembly worship, this is all the people that would be gathered around the outside of the temple, not just the Levites and the priests. All the assembly worship, the singers sang and the trumpeters uh, sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had finished offering, the king and all who were present with him bowed and worshiped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites sing praise to the Lord. Notice with the words of David and of Asaph the singer, so they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their, ha- their heads, and they worshipped. Do you notice what they're doing here? They're not just singing for God's pleasure. They're not just bringing praise that's meant for God's pleasure, but they're bringing praise that is emphasizing truth over style. Now, I'm sure that they were singing in a style that the Hebrews enjoyed. It was a style that fit that generation. We try to sing in a style that fits our generation. We want to sing praises to God that are emotionally familiar so that our hearts can enter into this praise that God is worthy of. But that's way less important than the words we're actually singing, the lyrics that we're actually singing. 
We want to sing things that are true about God, and we want to sing things that are true from our hearts to God. Now, we finish up this chapter, and we see that the people, as they respond to God after the sin offerings were made, through this authentic praise, they're also responding with willing and grateful hearts. Look at verse 31. Then Hezekiah answered and said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord. In other words, listen, the, the temple's been cleansed. You've received that, you, that you've brought, the, the sin offerings have been offered so that, that, that we know that we can receive, be received by God. You've praised God with these burnt offerings. You've sur- you surrendered your life to God. Now that that's happened, notice what he says. Now that you've consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near. Come near to what? They're already as close to the temple as they can get. Come near to God. Come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. So the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings. These would be like fellowship offerings. They're just not to deal with sin, but just to say, God, you're awesome. And a number of the burnt offerings, well, <coughs> which the assembly brought, were 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 lambs. Um, all these were burnt offerings to the Lord. These consecrated things were 600 bulls, 3,000 sheep, but the priests were too few, so they could not skin all the burnt offerings. In other words, they're bringing the, autom- the animals to be sacrificed, and these can't, guys can't butcher fast enough. Therefore, the brethren, their Levites, helped them until the work was ended, until the other priests had sanctified themselves, for the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. Now, I want you to think about this. Let me kind of try to take this scenario and put it maybe into a more modern scenario. Can you imagine there being a time where, where we as servants church are so hungry for God, we're so desperate to draw near to God that we say we have to have a Bible study three times a day. We need to come together for worship and the word three times a day. And so those on the leadership team were going, ah, I can't do anymore. I'm exhausted. There's nothing else that we can do. We just can't do it. And so what happens is everybody who's involved in any way that we think has any kind of maturity steps up and begins to have, make sure that these needs are getting met. It's that dramatic. It's that just so impromptu and powerful. What's happening here, and this is so encouraging to me, is that the priestly apathy... The fact that the priests didn't consecrate themselves well enough to be able to do, <laughs> to, or at least enough of them didn't do it, so that they could meet the needs of the people's worship. It didn't stop the people worshiping. It didn't stop the people worshiping. It's an echo to what we saw about Jotham last week. That even when people fail, we can still draw near to God. Even when leaders fail, or people fail, we can still draw near to God. Look at verse 35. Also, the burnt offerings were in abundance. Notice these, there are so many, of course, they couldn't keep up. And with the fat of the peace offerings and with the drink offerings for every burnt offering, these are just, again, describing how they would offer these things as an act of worship. And so the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. In other words, the way that God's temple was meant to be used so that God's people could draw near to God was reestablished. And then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. Guys, listen. This whole idea 
of worshiping God with willing and grateful hearts, of bringing authentic praise in a response that, that, that the sin offering has been made and we now can enter and draw near to God once again. This, all of this is stuff that gets fulfilled as well in the New Testament. All this is stuff that we still do. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15 says this, Therefore let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to His name. Did you get that? Again, one verse, lots of stuff there. How do we bring a sacrifice that's pleasing to God? Only through Jesus. Listen, if you're watching this today, and you don't yet know this God we speak of in a real, personal way, if you can't know or say with a clear conscience that you have a relationship with the creator of the universe through Jesus Christ, you need to understand something. You're only going to have that relationship through Jesus Christ. None of us are acceptable to God. We all fall short of God's glory. But God so loved us that he sent his son Jesus to be that lamb who takes away the sins of the world who enables us to come into right relationship so that when we come into right relationship, what's our response? Praise you, God. You are worthy to be praised. Now, we have different backgrounds. We've come from different church cultures. And so we might express ourselves in slightly different ways. But listen, if it, here's one of the ways you know that God has saved you. You know that the Lord has you. You know that because you're not embarrassed to praise Him. If you're embarrassed to praise God, do you actually know Him? And that's not me trying to be judgmental. That's just a challenge for you to examine your own heart. In fact, on this whole issue of revival, this first step of revival, of, of us beginning to refocus on God Himself, ask yourself, are you hungry for God? Because if you're not hungry for God, there's one of two scenarios going on. One scenario could be you just don't know him yet. You haven't actually met this God through Jesus Christ. You haven't actually uh, repented of your sin and seen Jesus for who he is and received the goodness of his sacrifice, the life that comes from his resurrection. You haven't been, as he said, born again. The other option is this. You're a starving person. You're a spiritually starving person. And here's what I mean. When a person is physically starving to death, there comes a point in that starvation where they're no longer hungry. They don't even feel hunger anymore. Maybe that's where you're at spiritually. What's hard about that is it's hard to know in that state. Are you a person that's been saved? Or you're, and, and it's just... <coughs> backslidden this much? Harden your heart this much? Or are you a person that hasn't been saved? That's something that you have to wrestle with God yourself. But here's what I can tell you in truth. If we turn to God, if we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. Why did Hezekiah and the people rejoice? Because God had prepared their hearts. Has God prepared you as you're listening to this? Has God prepared you to get right with Him? 
that the focus of your life, you know, is as important as it is to know what your future is, as important as it is to, to, to be concerned with your health and the health of loved ones, that the most important issue is you focusing on the God who's made you and redeemed you through Jesus Christ, to be in a right relationship with Him, to sing praises to Him. Are you hungry for that? Do you want that? You see, when we talk about revival, especially those of you who come from church traditions that, like I do, that, that make a big issue, revival. In fact, we really believe that the Calvary movement was part of a revival of God. But when you come from that background, often what can happen is you can be hungry for the fruits of revival, but not hungry for the God of revival. Father, I want to just pray and Lord, just thinking of the church in Great Britain and asking, Lord, that you would forgive us for building often our own little kingdoms instead of building up your kingdom. Just, I want to repent, Lord, of not seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness, but often seeking first servant's church and how it can be right. Lord, we know it begins with us here, but we just confess Lord, we need to be concerned and prayerful and humble about us as your body. Forgive us, Lord, for wanting to just stay positive instead of be repentant and humble. Change us, Lord. And I want to pray, Father, for us institutionally, uh, us as, the, as <coughs> the sanctuary of God, as the church, as servants' church, and say, Lord, we... Pray you'd forgive us. It's easy for us to be content with the good relationships that we have and maybe it's the sound teaching that we think that we bring forth or the great programs that we provide. Lord, help us to want you above all those things, to have want all those things only as they lead to you. And I want to pray for us as a nation, Lord. I thank you, Father, for bringing me to this great nation. And I pray, Father, that you would forgive your, forgive Great Britain for turning its back on you, Lord. God, they've <coughs> generations of pain from two world wars and social changes, Lord, that have been less than healthy. But yet, Lord, we've chosen as a nation to literally kill our children in the womb. We've chose as a nation, Lord, to either turn our back on the poor or to exploit the poor for our own political gains. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. Lord, may your people turn back to you. God, may we desire you. Lord, we pray. Make us hungry, Father. We're hungry to be hungry at least. And do what needs to be done. Please, Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, bless you guys. Uh, yeah, just pray for each other this week. Uh, looking forward to what God wants to do through his word and, uh, and in our lives. Take courage, take hope that God worked quickly in Hezekiah's day. He can work quickly in our day. Amen.
Bless you. We'll see you soon.